On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we talk to actor Austin Basis about his time on the sci-fi romance series Beauty and the Beast and his new comic book project featuring a super-powered team of kids with disabilities. Plus, we step into the oasis with the Ready Player One virtual reality experience. Now, straight from Gaston's tavern, uh, wait, wrong Beauty and the Beast, sorry. This is 1.21 Gigawatts. Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 26 for March 2018. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of that nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. I have stepped inside the Oasis and I'm here to report that it is pretty amazing. I was involuntarily mumbling wow as I was transported from the physical world into the virtual for a fully immersive experience that I could not have anticipated. I should take a moment to clarify that I'm not actually talking about the new Steven Spielberg science fiction big screen spectacular Ready Player One but rather the new Ready Player One Oasis beta virtual reality apps, which are currently available for the Vive VR headsets. You know, it's a small thing, but one of the coolest elements of the VR experience is that it very effectively acts as the film tie-in that it is by narratively replicating and by extension, explaining what the promise of virtual reality can be. The experience starts by placing the user in the middle of a messy but very relatable looking room with video game posters on the wall, some sort of sci-fi plastic model hanging from the ceiling, old computer and gaming components scattered about, and there, sitting on an outdated looking swivel chair, is a virtual, virtual reality headset. So basically, you're standing in as the protagonist of Ready Player One as he leaves his own squalorific pop culture festooned life for the Oasis, the virtual reality world which is the future's one-stop shop for everything. Gaming, education, commerce, socializing, etc. In the VR experience, you're whisked away into, first, a much nicer living space than the one you just left, a futuristic apartment with a balcony that looks out over a city with airspace dominated by some flying vehicle air traffic and a giant leaderboard. Imagine a solidly lower middle class suburb of Coruscant that's really into scoreboards. This is your home base to explore everything the Oasis has to offer, which, as of this writing, basically boils down to three first-person perspective games, each one from a different development studio. They are, number one, Planet Gauntlet, a modern take on the classic arcade game featuring a quest through a dungeon looking for treasure, restorative food, and the many enchanted adversaries that populate it. Number two, Battle for the Oasis, a Ready Player One themed shooting game in which the player must fend off increasingly aggressive rushing waves of IOI soldiers, gunships, and robots. And number three, Rise of the Gunters, a running and shooting and flying experience which seems to throw everything and the kitchen sink into first person shooter combat that frankly starts to hit sensory overload. Considering you're shooting at bad guys ranging from humanoids to 8-bit-looking space invadery adversaries zooming past your head, it gets to be a bit much. It's entirely possible that this is meant to mimic the final battle royale of the Ready Player One story, and I can respect that. 
But if that is the case, Granddad here is perfectly willing to enjoy that one from the comfort of my comfy multiplex seat. For my money, Gauntlet is the big winner here. This was an arcade multiplayer favorite of mine in the 80s, and the VR version is a blast, even if there is no narrator droning, wizard needs food badly, as there was back in the day. You're playing as an archer in this game, which is basic enough to quickly learn and teach yourself some effective combat strategy, but difficult enough to make it a challenge as you advance into the increasingly tougher to survive torch-lit chambers. You're fighting off handfuls of mummified warriors whose wounds glow with a blue light when you fire an arrow or two into them, and then suddenly they have swords, and now some of them are archers also? Ah. Luckily, just like the original game, there are some tasty turkey dinners to be found throughout the dungeon to restore your health and keep you alive for one chamber more. You can even fling those turkey bones around the dungeon once you've virtually gnawed off the meat. Not much of a combat advantage there, but it's always cool to be able to interact with the environment. The Oasis also promises at least two upcoming features for future updates, including a social mode, and there are loads of design teases for lots of additions beyond that. And for me, that's what makes this not only an interesting movie tie-in, but also the best opportunity to explain to less tech-savvy populations what the promise of virtual reality is really all about. The Oasis VR experience suggests that one portal is the one-stop shop doorway to arguably everything. It's the same message as the Ready Player One book and movie. Put on your VR headset and do and play and become anything. In the case of the VR experience, those activities may all be gaming-related so far, but it's hard not to appreciate the fact that they're all rounded up and accessible through an inclusive portal featuring content in different genres from different creative studios that, I guess, all cumulatively helps calculate your standings in that big scoreboard in the sky. Whether or not the movie launches a golden age of VR headset ownership or not, you'll be happy to know that those of you who can't portal into the Oasis just yet are still being kept in mind by the Ready Player One promotional team. If all that first-person shooting and dungeon exploration isn't your thing, head over to arcade.readyplayeronemovie.com, which is ready to scratch your retro video game itch with recreations of 80s arcade classics like Robotron, Defender, and Joust, while tossing in one or two original movie tie-in games like First to the Key. And now I'm torn between throwing on the headset again and venturing further into the Dungeons of Gauntlet or slinging some seriously pixelated drinks at my desktop computer with a root beer tapper. Decisions, decisions. Actor Austin Basis is the poster child for hard work paying off. A boy from Brooklyn who studied hard at Binghamton University and the Actors Studio, paid his dues in student films, off-off-Broadway productions, catering gigs, but then turned some commercial successes into regular TV work, including the role ultimately of J.T. Forbes on Beauty and the Beast, and now he's leading the charge on a very special independent comic book project called The Kinetics. Austin, welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, like, I love the name of the uh, the <laughs> the show. It's, it's uh, <laughs> close to my heart as I grew up in the '80s and loved uh, Back to the Future and kind of was uh, a geek of my own. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that often does end up being the litmus test for some people. Will just stare at me blankly, but the ones that are like, nice. Those are the ones that I want to know. Yeah. The, the you say the show that's made from pure plutonium. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. The people that really know 
you know. Uh huh. That's right. It is harvested by us just sort of tossing uh, banana peels and cans into a Mr. Fusion, and that's really what powers this show. And smuggled away from the Libyans. <laughs> that's right. In a high speed, low speed chase through a parking lot. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That was a shot like right down the block in the valley from uh, where I used to live. Oh, really? Twin Pines Mall or the yeah. fake Twins Pines, like, Twin Pines Mall? Yeah. You always, you always find these places you're like, oh, that's where the, that looks familiar. That's where Pee-wee's, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was filmed. That's where <laughs> this was filmed. That's LA. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I want to I want to look. I'm I'm going to cherry pick a little bit on your uh, resume, um, and uh, this one is is among the the hardest core cherry picks I think, and really uh, obscure credit. But as someone who has spent many years in the improv and sketch comedy trenches myself, I need to know more about mm comedy. Okay, so <laughs> mm comedy. Uh, uh, let me preface it with saying. After I graduated the Actor Studio Drama School, a prestigious uh, method acting training program where I received an MFA in dramatic acting where I learned the techniques that are commonly used in most of the dramatic films of the later half of the 21st, uh, 20th century. Um, the, uh, the, the year that I graduated, 9-11 happened. So... Uh, the industry, when I came out of school, basically shut down, and the only thing left were a few kind of little things on uh, backstage. So what I did was um, I always wanted to do improv comedy, and I sought it out as a uh, a cathartic relief of my creative like juices that weren't being uh, utilized after three three years straight of you know, doing an MFA, MFA program. So I, I went to the New York Comedy Club and they had a weekly improv troupe that would perform. And um, soon after I started, I met a guy named Dave Malbeck, mm-hmm. um, who, who you know, and who I um, quickly realized was one of the better, or if not one of the best improv uh, people that I had ever met. And so, uh, Dave and a couple of other guys in the group, and this has happened, you know, I guess, uh, commonly in this group because it was a very repetitive thing. You do the same thing every week, and there was no, there was a glass ceiling. There was kind of no room for growth within this little troop. And so, um, uh, Dave and another guy, Duncan, uh, kind of recruited, you know, and, and cherry picked. Some of the talent from our uh, uh, our group, and one of the other guys was Josh Taub, and so we uh, all together formed uh, M Comedy, which was I don't know who named it, but a great name. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we we created this. We wanted to do sketch comedy too, so it was a a sketch comedy improv show with stand up comedian guests. And we'd have musical guests every Monday night. Um, and the show was an hour and a half, two hour show that would be loosely structured around uh, the sketches we'd create. And then within the sketches or between the sketches, we would allow for these short form improv games. 
and sometimes weave it into the arc of a, a greater sketch. Like mm. we did kind of like this thing called the Brothers mm, that was kind of like Lord of the Rings where they went on a search and throughout the, the arc of the sketches, you'd meet all these characters that were written out and then somehow to get the clue to move on to the next level, you would have to get a suggestion from the audience, do an improv and then move on. Um, Sometimes it was much more simpler, where it was like MTV, so it was MTV, and we did spoofs of all the, you know, we did our own version of like uh, a real world Harold, like yep. a longer form improv that we created around the real world. Um, and that was all, you know, Dave's expertise kind of informed that. And uh, we did that for, you know, uh, well into the summer. It was like seven straight months of every Monday night doing this awesome show where we had one rehearsal every week because we all worked jobs and we all had to make a living. So we'd do one rehearsal every week and then on Monday night, we'd usually do the rehearsal on Sunday night, write the sketches sometime in the middle of the week, email them by the end of the week. <laughs> by, by Sunday, you'd be like half memorized and then Monday, we'd put up the sketches. We'd actually, for an hour or two before each show, we'd go out to Times Square with flyers, kind of bark for our own nice. show, get people in there. And um, while, while we were getting our friends plus some randoms in there, we had pretty full audiences. It was later on in the run that it became harder and harder and more difficult without like social media at the time. Right. It was like 14 years ago. so. We didn't have that kind of word of mouth by virtue of the internet. Um, it was much harder to kind of get an audience in, and and so uh, it, that was that wore on us, you know, more than the actual performing. Oh, performing sure. was awesome. Oh, for sure. I think it's interesting, actually, that that you sought out improv comedy after a nine eleven, like as a result of nine eleven, in part, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was, uh, I and a lot of my friends were deeply involved with uh, a place called Gotham City Improv um, at the time. And of course, we, like, you know, Letterman and everyone, were all having these, like, internal conflict issues of, like, what do we do now? Like, is comedy gone from the world? Has it been wiped away? Uh, and sort of yeah. slowly finding our way back into that. So uh, I, I actually like to hear that someone some ones out there were like, you know what? This is the moment. This is actually the moment to dive in. I wasn't a member of the actor studio yet, but I was, I would go because I was a graduate of the school. Yeah. So it was like this weird, like, what is, what is my purpose and why, why am I doing this? And it was hard to be serious about acting when there was so much more to be serious about in the world. Sure. So hence, the, the comedic side of it, and I was brought up that way anyway, where uh, humor was what I feel like, you know, broke the tension of a lot of other, you know, aspects of life. Right. It right. made it easier and more fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so jumping forward on your resume then, uh, after growing up in New York and moving to LA and booking a series, uh, life on unexpected on the CW at first. And then that project ends after two seasons and you rolled relatively quickly into beauty and the beast after all these years of drama school and the random jobs and sketch and improv and commercial credits, how did it feel to step into being a series regular for between the two series for almost six consistent years? The brass ring is yours. 
Yeah. Um, uh, it was, you know, like I always, I'm always, I was always a person. And I think a lot of people are where they set goals that are attainable. You know, I try to set goals that are attainable so I wouldn't fail. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, like I always want to, like I drive my, I pass my driver's test on the first time, like, you know, things like that, where it's like throughout life, I'm like, I want to get into the actor's studio the first time I audition. I don't want to have to keep auditioning. So I, I put in the work and I do as, as much as I can to make that happen. Because in part, I'm kind of a little lazy, you know? <laughs> um, so if, you, if you're in this to be a star and a celebrity, then you're, you know, you're in it for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And I was never like that. I wanted to act. I wanted to do it. Um, cause that's what I enjoyed and you know, whatever came with it comes with it. So, um, I set my reasonable goal, my reasonably attainable goal at, um, I wanted to be able to act for a living and not have to do anything else, not have to work a day job, not have to wait tables, bartend, you know, work catering, um, you know, be a substitute teacher, all of which all of the jobs would that I did have early on in my career. I worked at an antique store, uh, art store in Beverly Hills for the first two years when I was living out here. And the first year that I was able to not do that, I did a couple of independent films. I had done some commercials, saved some money. And I said, you know, I have a year or so, or maybe even more of money saved so that I, I could actually focus fully on auditions and acting and go to the actor studio and do all that stuff. And so um, I did that and a year or two after that is when I got uh, Life Unexpected. And it was the first time I realized like somewhere in the middle of doing the pilot and it getting picked up to go, because once you do the pilot, it's like I had done a pilot already. So it was like, it was my second pilot, but this one got picked up and now it's like, Wow, like I'm not only gonna make what I just made, which is a lot of money once, I'm gonna make it for uh, half a season of TV because we were a mid-season replacement. So mm-hmm. it's like, it was crazy financially to be able to know that I was gonna be able to pay off my credit card debt and not have to go check to check, but also the idea that I'm actually making a living as an actor and uh, not having to do another job. Like this is my job, you know, it's, it's my career and my job. So not a lot of actors have that. Um, and that's, uh, that's awesome because it's a cycle of, I, a lot of actors will know this, that, uh, work other jobs and then, you know, do acting work. And even if you don't work another job, acting work, you, you work so intermittently that you save up the money when you do work and then you ride that money out for as long as possible which is now like I've been off the show for two years, but it's like, you know, you use, and I've worked other jobs, but it's, it's kind of like that, you know, you see that, that kind of like next stepping stone getting further and further away where you're like, okay, what's the next thing? I got to keep this momentum going. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it was a realization that I was like doing this for a living and not having to do another job in the mic. Wow, especially on Beauty and the Beast, it was kind of like, you know, I had full seasons. I was like up in, you know, both shot in Canada, one in Vancouver and one in Toronto. 
and it's like, you know, I'm basically living in another country, another city, another country, doing a job, and it's like you have new goals. It's like my new goal is <laughs> to get a show that shoots in America, <laughs> ideally in LA, but maybe in America, and uh, be able to live in my country and do this thing for a living. Um, so yeah. For those who missed Beauty and the Beast during its four seasons on the CW, I, I want to quickly summarize the premise because this is very much not the Disney movie, of course. So uh, on this show, especially in the beginning, a, a beautiful woman finds herself visiting an isolated building where your character lives, basically runs the household, he's in charge. She sneaks into the forbidden area where the beast, quote unquote, lives. And as the story continues, eventually falls in love with him. So assuming that information, this premise is all more or less correct. Do you see your character as more of a Cogsworth or Lumiere? <laughs> um, I don't know the. Uh, it wasn't a prerequisite to have watched <laughs> or experienced the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast. To uh, uh, the the script was the the pilot script was very good, and the character was my character uh, throughout the series too was written, I think, in a way that made it easier to play than some of the other characters sure. because it was so clear who that character was. Well, sure, because he's he's the entry point into into the series, absolutely, for, for viewers. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, he... Uh, um, so, so with regards to... He's kind of both, but I'd probably <laughs> say he's more Cogsworth. All, all kidding aside, all of my ridiculous questions aside, um, what do you think was the secret to, to the show's success? Because four seasons, that's no fluke. Um, no. Well, I think a combination of fantasy and um, supernatural kind of world of fairy tales, like Beauty and the Beast is, you know, out there. So um, Kristen Kruk uh, uh, being on Smallville and having... Uh, that kind of a following um, chemistry between the cast and the um, the the chemistry between the main two actors, and I think you know the core six or seven people that were series regulars. The chemistry between all of us, and I think the you know we tried to bring the best to a kind of fantastical world. I felt like that those several things that I mentioned were the cause of it. And then you had every year was a risk of being canceled. So it <laughs> it rallied the, the, the fans who were, uh, I don't know if they named themselves or we named them the Beasties, but they were, uh, they were a very rabid fan base and that's the best word to describe it. Mainly, mainly women. Um, and you know uh, they they were dead set on making sure the show didn't get canceled. So through social media, through Twitter, there was a lot of live tweeting. A lot of uh, um, there's kind of the coming of age of that live tweeting uh, era, um, and uh, it that helped and trending and all this stuff that we you know the, the fans were so enthusiastic that they. They made themselves look like a big, a bigger community because mm -hmm. of how 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 vocal they were mm -hmm. on social media. And so when 
uh, networks renewing a show, they not only look at ratings now, they look at, you know, that type of stuff too. Because if the conversation is going on social media about a show and it doesn't have that great of ratings or the ratings aren't necessarily up to snuff, then that will keep a show alive. So let's shift to The Kinetics. That's an independent comic book project that you're involved with. Uh, it's currently looking for support on Kickstarter. Um, I've been reading all about it and watching the video and all that good stuff, so I could rattle off what it's all about, but it's going to be way more interesting to hear you talk about it. So, uh, Austin, what is the, what's the elevator pitch for Kinetics? What do people need to know about Kinetics? About a group of high school kids with disabilities who are students by day and superheroes by night. Um, that's the basic logline. The origin of the story comes from, uh, as an actor in the public eye, I've done a lot of work with uh, uh, juvenile diabetes, uh, type one, it's called now, um, outreach and advocacy, uh, because I was diagnosed uh, two weeks before my ninth birthday with type one. And uh, ever since I was a kid, you know, looking for role models out in the public eye, I never really had, you know, uh, role models, whether it was baseball players or actors other than Mary Tyler Moore, you know, because for a kid, even when I was a kid, it's hard to explain, you know, your body can't use the sugar, you know, digest it well or something like it was hard to explain. It's a way it's an autoimmune disease. So it's like, you know, your autoimmune system you know, basically attacks your insulin producing cells and your body's unable to produce the insulin that basically allows sugar to be used as energy in the cell. So when you eat sugar, instead of, you know, being converted into energy and in a diabetic's body, it, it kind of poisons the system. It, you know, goes into the bloodstream, it goes into the urine, you know, your urine, thickens the blood, it like goes through all major organs and adversely affects everything. So anyway, that's the long reason, you know, that's the long explanation. And this kid just told his friends he was a cyborg because he was attached to a machine. And since that time, I was like 2012 when I first started Beauty and the Beast, I had it in my head. I was, you know, trying to conceive of a way of putting a uh, a type one diabetic character into uh, into some sort of media, whether it was TV, film. Now it's co comic books is is what we're doing. But the idea is that um, m the message I bring when I, I talk to kids and I meet um, and speak at, at events, for me at least as an actor, I don't know if I would have been as successful as I am now without the challenges, the lessons responsibilities that I was taught through having type 1 diabetes as a kid so I, I look at it as a gift and um, and not the negative side effects that could happen years down the line where what everyone talks about at most diabetes events and so my experience was how do I fill that void and how do I put a positive spin on um, you know what what I want to bring to to the you know what message I want to bring to the community and the the way in was that this you know this team of of kids the kinetics one of which of the kids has type one diabetes and he turns into a cyborg called Cybetes. Um 
I felt like I had a potential energy that um, was greater than someone that didn't have type one diabetes. Um, and for example, I have a friend that was born without legs and you know, not having legs didn't take anything away from her, but rather gave her uh, a motivation and a, and, and a bit and a kind of a greater potential energy to kind of make the most out of what she had. And um, that is where the kinetics, you know, kind of the play on the potential energy versus kinetic energy um, kind of came to be. How did you decide on the, the four physical and developmental challenges that make up the group? Obviously, you're very connected to type 1 diabetes and the community and the science and research. And you just mentioned your friend who uh, was born uh, without legs. Tell me about the other characters and, and how you decided to go with, uh, with those um, afflictions. Um, I, uh, my brother is a teacher, um, and um, I've... I, a, a close family friend's son was autistic, um, and a couple of my brother's students were did ha, were on the spectrum. Um, you know, they they're changing the definition of what it is now. Um, it's not Rain Man. You know, it's not just idiot savant. It's not autist. You know, just autistic. Mm -hmm. There, it's more of a spectrum disorder now. Right. And so you had autism and Aspergers, and um, I've. I've seen some of the gamut of what that is and, you know, what that, um, you know, it, as a, as a, as an actor, as an artist, um, and as a, as a, as a sports fan, I think it's, there is, there is, there's a lot of undiagnosed spectrum disorders, but part of the misnomer with a lot of these conditions and, you know, diseases or chronic, you know, uh, or disabilities uh, are the idea that they're somehow uh, less than, but what that opens up and what the positive that comes out of that is, is what we want, we are trying to focus on, and that the, the underestimation of that world, whether in, as an actor, there's performers with disabilities that are still fighting for uh, acceptance, uh, representation, and, um, you know, I guess relevation or to be relevant uh, because they're living their lives and those lives aren't necessarily being depicted in the public eye um, in, in media, in entertainment, in, in comic books, in movies, um, in, in TV. So uh, part of what we're doing is kind of putting it out there. And so also the third character, I mean, the fourth character uh, is unable to speak or, or hear. Um, and this one specifically is, uh, because of the idea that, um, we haven't seen a superhero like that. I mean, obviously the other three, you really haven't seen superheroes like that, but the, you know, what I found fascinating, it's, it's almost as if we've created this character to learn more about that community. Um, I, um, I have not had any personal uh, um, contact with that community in, in a sense of, you know, growing up or, but it, I feel like that is a, you know, an, a community that oftentimes, even in the shape of water, when someone is cast 
as either uh, someone that's mute or can't hear, someone who's deaf, it's usually played by a, a normally speaking or, you know, fully, you know, hearing person. Um, and this type of, this type of, of character, um, I feel like you need to serve what, what that, that story is and tell the personal story of what someone has to go through to, to communicate and live their life um, and find happiness. I 100% agree with that, and uh, uh, I'm going to get heavy now. I'll tell you why the kinetics grabbed my attention a little bit, and this is news that uh, the majority of my friends and family and listeners to this show probably don't know about, simply because it's only about a week old, as you and I record. Um, a little less than a week ago, my three-year-old son received an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. Um, so aside from the fact that uh, my household has been <laughs> going through all the emotional states and just sort of reeling with the, okay, okay, yeah. what do we do next? Um, yes. But uh, then as I learned about the Kinetics Project, then uh, for sure it, it really grabbed me, grabbed me by the lapels, I think, uh, to... Um, from the representation standpoint, because you're right, not only do you, does one not normally see these characters, certainly in comics, let alone in the mainstream media as, as frequently as, um, as, they ex as these populations exist in, in the real world. Um, yeah. But it, it just goes so far as far as the representation, because so many people, of course, are dealing with these issues, but it's not even just for the people who, um, uh, have these issues, whether they're uh, developmental um, issues or physical issues, but it's also for their friends and families, of course. You know, I I don't know when or if or if I want to, if my son will ever read comics or want to read comics, but his brother does and his dad does. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think it's just as important for, for the, the families and friends and the circle of people around um, uh, these folks who are either on the yeah. spectrum or who have a physical disability or uh, are, are the cyborgs that you mentioned with type one diabetes um, to, to see that, to see it reflected back and, um, and uh, demystify what it is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we're more the same than we are different, but people's differences are their uniqueness and their, you know, what makes them special. To us, it's like trying to create that three dimensionality within the comic book. It's, these two stories with this superhero story, you know, on one side and this human story on the other, where these characters are going through their lives, as we all do, um, with ups and downs and distractions and things that they have to balance with this great responsibility, you know, with, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the old Spider-Man line, you right. know, you know, we really just want to get the message out there. Um, and, and, get the comic books in the hands of kids, you know, brothers, sisters, you know, family, friends of kids that, you know, especially like on the spectrum, he might not be able to read it, but, it, you know, his brother, his parents will be able to read it and maybe hopefully have a better understanding and a greater appreciation for what he, who he is and what he's capable of. 
so impressed that uh, that you guys are digging in so hard into it. And, and, and it, <laughs> this is maybe a strange thing to say, but it's almost then a, a boon in this case that there's a, a cheerleader like yourself involved with this project that, that has type 1 diabetes. Because since you're so versed in, in that world to begin with, not only are you going to um, do right by that character, but um, approach your other three characters, I'm sure, with the with the same level of of rigor uh, in in researching yeah. how how best to represent them, and I um, think that's fantastic. That's probably the way that a project like this has to go; otherwise, it would just sort of ring false. But that is not the case, so I am uh, yeah. I am all for it. All right, so um, needless to say, if you're listening out there and this sounds interesting to you, then get thee to Kickstarter. And uh, search for the Kinetics. The Kickstarter campaign is running through April thirteenth. Backers, go check it out. Eleven fifty nine on on Thursday, April twelfth Pacific time. So uh, it's just over three weeks, or around three weeks right now. Um, whenever this airs, it's it'll be less than three weeks. Probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. Uh, we're almost halfway there. I think we're at 44 or 45% of our goal. Um, obviously, we would love to go over our goal to make more comic books. Um, so we have three three weeks left and hopefully get the rest of the money. Um, and uh, we're going to produce 20,000 comics for uh, four different characters, 5,000 comic books of each character to go out to schools uh, libraries, um, these different organizations that uh, that address the different communities, JDRF, Autism Speaks, and what uh, whatever other organizations that are open to 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 our you know our cause and our, our mission our mission. That's that's amazing. I wish you all the luck in the world, and uh, thanks so much for stopping by, Austin. It's a pleasure talking with you and. Uh, catching up with with what you've been doing and the Lucifer episode, very funny, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a fun time doing that. (laughs) Excellent. Well, have a great night and thanks again and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, you too. Take care. Okay, everyone, here's the update. We are now under two weeks, and the Kinetics has raised just about $6,000 on Kickstarter. If you'd like to help bring this project to life and are able to help support it, don't drag your feet. Get on over to Kickstarter and make it happen. You can also follow the progress of both the Kickstarter campaign as well as Austin's continuing adventures in Hollywood on social media. For the latest on Austin, check him out at Austin Basis at Twitter and Instagram and look for him at Austin.Basis on Facebook. The Kinetics Project, meanwhile, can be found on Facebook at Team Kinetics, which is spelled K-I-N-E-T-I-X, by the way, and at the underscore kinetics on Twitter and Instagram. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Many thanks to my guest Austin Basis and to our mutual pal Dave Malbeck, who also serves as the artist on the Kinetics comic book project, for connecting Austin with the podcast in the first place. 
You may be interested to know that I will be taking my celebrity interviewing act on the road on Saturday, April 7th, and you're invited! I'll be in Atlantic City at the Showboat Hotel for the Garden State Comic Fest, hosting panels with voice actor Diane Pershing, who played Poison Ivy from Batman the Animated Series, Gotham Girls, and much more, Marty Grabstein, the voice of Cartoon Network's Courage the Cowardly Dog, and, wait for it, pop culture convention royalty Summer Glau from Firefly, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Arrow, and more. Details and tickets are available at GardenStateComicFest.org. Please let me know if you're going to be there so I can say hi in person. Many, many thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ears and brain and theater of the mind to nerd out. It means way more to me than you know. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? And what deserves to be slashed like a kaiju on the wrong end of a Jaeger's weapon? You can give feedback and be part of the conversation at one of the show's many social media channels. They are the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Gigawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www.121gigawatts.com and soak in the nerdliness. And if you're not already aware, every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcast section at the iTunes store. It is so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. You know what I'd really appreciate? Whether you're a subscriber or not, you can leave the show a review, hopefully a good one, on iTunes, which will help more people find the show, because that's how computer algorithms work, apparently. And then we all make some new friends, introduce some new listeners to the fun we're having here, and that would make me a happy, happy man. It will take 30 seconds and could make such a difference to the team behind this podcast. As for the rest of you, if you're not an iTunes user, you can also find us by searching for 1.21 Gigawatts at SoundCloud.com or on Player FM. Huge gratitude to the master of the mixer, the mix master, if you will, composer, my co-producer, and fellow Star Wars nerd, Jedi Master David Sisko, don't hate the player, hate the game. You are and remain the best, Sisko. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all of those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's Nerd Rock Band H2Awesome with our rad-tastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Send you a blood sample and she's gonna wanna know if it's enhanced. But I need you to slow walk it from me, will ya? What? Why? Just trust me, I'm trying to save a man's life here and save Catherine from herself. Uh, wait, hold on, I got another call. Hello? JT, I'm sending you a blood sample. How soon can you find out if it's enhanced?
Um, enhanced? What do you mean enhanced? You know what I mean. I don't have a lot of time. Well, maybe you and Vincent should talk first, you know? Vincent? Wait, did he call you about this? Did he tell you not to help me? Uh, oh, please. Hello? Have you talked to Kat? She's not answering her phone, and Belinda Zalman is threatening to sue. She's on the other line, actually. Put her on. I want to talk to her now. Hold on. Tess needs to talk to you. I don't have time to talk to Tess. You're not Kat. Kat, what, is she on the other line? Put her on, man, because I need to talk to her right now. Hold on. Both Vincent and Tess need to talk to you. I am Tess. Sorry, hold. Vincent and Tess need to talk to you. I don't want to talk to Vincent. I want to find out about the blood sample. Kat doesn't want to talk to you. What? You're not Vincent. Damn it, give me Kat. All right, I knew this would bite me in the ass. Yeah, well, it would be nice if someone cared about my ass once in a while. I got issues I'm dealing with too, okay?